Hello everyone, I'm Mike Briggs and welcome to this episode of the Innovators Collaborators podcast. With the federal election just around the corner, I'm watching with keen interest on how much the discussion around energy efficiency is on the agenda and I had a really interesting chat with Luke Menzel, the CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council that I'd like to share with you. I think this is a conversation that's important for all of us across the industry, business and in fact households alike. So I hope you enjoyed. Luke, thanks for joining us. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm very well. Can I say I'm just just delighted to uh, delighted to be here for the chat and to to share uh, some of what the EC gets up to. So let's uh, let's jump in and talk about your journey leading to the role of the CEO for the Energy Efficiency Council. And for our listeners, perhaps you can share what is exactly the role of ECE does. So we're, we're, as you said, uh, the, the peak body for energy efficiency, energy management, demand response. We're an industry association. Our members are, are companies, uh, local governments, universities and not-for-profits. So it's a pretty diverse membership, but sort of united in a, in a common cause, which is a, a passion for putting energy efficiency, energy management in the heart of the transition to net zero. We've been around since 2009, and, and you'll remember... Mike, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the the climate transition back then, uh, probably the real first wave of seriousness as a federal level in terms of thinking through what some of the policy levers might be. You know, we had a brief moment of bipartisanship on that front back then. And the companies that founded the Energy Efficiency Council back in 2009 were of the view that uh, while there was a lot of discussion about renewables and, and appropriately so, there wasn't as much focus on the important role of energy efficiency and energy management in that transition uh, to a, a low emissions economy. So they uh, they founded the council and there was a view that there was a need for a dedicated voice um, in the policy debates of, of the day, um, sort of explaining you know, what energy efficiency could do in terms of emissions reduction, but also just improving lives of Australians, healthier, comfortable buildings, and the productivity of Aussie businesses along the way. So there was, there's this idea with energy efficiency that you've got this triple dividend. So uh, it's obviously a fair bit of water under the bridge, bridge since then, but uh, as, a, as an association, we've gone from strength to strength, uh, 13 or 14 years in, um, we sort of continue to advocate very strongly at a, at a state as well as a, a national level, um, work very closely with governments right around the country. We also do training and certification in the, uh, in the space for energy management professionals. And we do a lot of work on business literacy, sort of, you know, getting businesses up to speed with what's happening with the energy transition and um, and what net zero is likely to mean to them as they, they look for opportunities to lower emissions within their own business. So a lot to talk about. We can go in a lot of different directions, Mike, but I'll be <laughs> directed by you. <laughs> so what about leading up into the role as CEO? Um, how has that journey been for you? How do you see the um, CEC emerging um, over time? Yeah, so look, uh, I've been with the Energy Efficiency Council for just over 10 years. Previously, um, in my 20s, I worked in the civil construction sector. I went back to uni when I was uh, 28, 29 and did a Master's of Environmental Governance with a focus on energy. At that time, I was I was starting to get pretty uh, interested in the energy transition, sort of interested in you know how we address climate change in a practical way, in a way that was sort of bring I guess society and, and particularly business along for the journey. And over the course of that master's program, I sort of came to a pretty firm view that energy efficiency was a was a win win win. 
that that was something where we could make a, a really big dent in our carbon emissions really quickly and obviously save people money and boost productivity and leave people with um, healthier, more comfortable homes along the way. So I developed that that passion back then and uh, my first uh, first job I applied for actually coming out of that master's degree was uh, the 2IC role um, at the Energy Efficiency Council as it was back then and um, uh, did my apprenticeship uh, under then CEO Rob Murray-Leach and uh, and then ultimately was uh, was asked to, to take over in, in uh, 2015. So um, I've done a lot around the organisation. Um, back early in the day, I actually got, you know, I, I mentioned the training and certification program. That was, My job was to get that, that going back in, back in 2012. And now it's a really key plank of what the organisation does is making sure that we've got the professionals out of the market to d- deliver high-quality services, um, across you know uh, homes and and commercial buildings and and uh, industrial businesses as well. So um, uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been quite the ride, Mike. Absolutely, um, great. Um, you mentioned the third dividends. What what do you mean by that? Just for the audience's sake. So um, triple dividends. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, this is going into policy wonk land. So you it pull me up if I if I go too deep. But um, look. I, at a high level, uh, what uh, a lot of the international bodies talk about with energy efficiency is actually the phrase that gets used is the, the multiple benefits. Mm. And so energy efficiency, when you've got um, energy systems that are, are dominated by fossil fuels and notwithstanding the fact that you know renewables are starting to um, really pick up the pace in terms of uh, deployment, Australia's energy system and indeed energy systems around the world remain dominated by fossil fuels, coal and gas and the like. One of the quickest ways you can cut carbon is just by using that resource more efficiently and productively. Indeed, you know, the vast bulk of uh, emissions reductions over the last 20, 30 years have been from energy efficiency for that very reason. So that's, a, that's I guess, one dividend. And then you go through the different sectors of the economy and, and the one that is a cross-cutting Benefit obviously is affordability and 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 cost. Um, you know, di- different points. You recall, Mike, over the last mm. few years, um, there's been a real concern around cost of energy. Uh, you know, the unit cost of energy is something obviously that uh, we all have an interest in driving down. But one of the things that perhaps we could pay more attention to is you know the volume of energy we're using. Because what we find is that uh, businesses and, and households, at the end of the day, they care about not what the unit cost of energy is. It's about what uh, what the number is on their energy bill, mm. and so energy efficiency obviously has the benefit of, uh, of driving that down and it's something that households and businesses can control. Mm. But then there's all these specific benefits when you go sector by sector. So in, in homes, Australian householders are often really interested in, in having a, a home that's comfortable, also a home that's healthy and that means that it doesn't get too cold in winter or too hot in summer. The statistic that we were shocked by when we, we when we first found this out um, was that more people are dying from hypothermia in Australia on a per capita basis than in in Sweden. It's largely down to the very poor quality of um, particularly older Australian housing stock. Um, mm. So so you got that benefit in the housing sector, but then in in the industrial space, there's incredible opportunities for resource process and energy efficiency, energy productivity, essentially, by looking at things like. Uh, the motors that are used, the efficiency of boilers, you know, what, uh, process optimization, all of these pieces come into play. And so multiple benefits go sector by sector. There's just there's, there's often just a, a, a huge number of uh, benefits that accrue by a, a focus on 
energy efficiency. But sometimes that works against you because there's so many different ways of measuring the benefit that um, sometimes that's not captured in business cases or it's not captured in government policy. Mm. It requires a fair bit of focus in order to, to keep all those benefits in, in sight um, and sort of un- unpick what they actually mean and, and, and uh, place a value on them, if that makes sense. That's interesting. I think the thing around residential buildings and the quality of the building, whilst we are trying to you know, reduce the cost and entry for people to, to buy their own home, we have this compounding issue around cost to make them thermally more stable and you know, able to be heated and cooled a lot easier. So how do you see that balance between really driving the quality of the building and also the cost associated with that and then the increasing cost of owning your own home? Yeah, it's a it's a really important question, and there is a obviously a balancing act. But um, I think in the debate in Australia, it's probably been a little bit too much emphasis on kind of that upfront cost and not enough emphasis on ongoing running costs. Um, it it is a false economy to knock a, a, a two or three thousand dollars off the selling price of a of a new home and then be sort of on the hook for potentially you know tens of thousands of dollars over the over the lifetime of that property because it hasn't been insulated properly or you know it hasn't got got the um, efficient appliances in it. Um, so you know it's a balancing act, and the other sort of thing that that often gets lost, I suppose, is that while you know nominally there can be an upfront cost by having a slightly more stringent regulation, over time those costs tend to dissipate just because you get economies of scale. Mm. Builders learn how to build the home more efficiently, and the and you know if there's a strong demand for a certain um, efficiency. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of your key appliances, whether whether it's uh, you know a, a hot water system or a RCAC an air conditioner or something like that, um, you know that, that just becomes the standard of what's in the market. There's a, there's good supply chains build up, and you know obviously there's competition in those markets to deliver products that uh, hit that minimum requirement in in a cost effective way. So, you know, these things need to be balanced. Um, We need to acknowledge that, you know, the cost of homes is something that we need to be very mindful of, especially in the in the current market, but we, we as an organisation would say that um, you could you could push a bit harder and, and ultimately, the, the, you know, uh, Australians would, would benefit from, um, from lower energy bills over time. Yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of um, using less, not, not trying to save cost on dollars per unit, but actually using less energy, I think, is the game here. Right, so let's let's dig into a little detail. Um, what are the drivers um, from uh, from your perspective of being around driving the, the smart energy management process over time? Well, uh, <laughs> Mike, you're, you're you're as much of an expert in this as I am, so kind of interested in, in you chipping in on this as well. But um, I suppose over over my time in the space, um, there's been a few trends, and uh, there's a, and there's and they're sort of coming together and in, intersecting in really interesting ways now. Where, you know, cost is a perennial, um, but that came to a head, I think, as it does on a cyclical basis, but really in a dramatic way in sort of 2017. You know, you saw those incredible gas and electricity prices, um, mm. and businesses and households just just completely ropeable because this this well. You know, experts in the space. You know, it's you've seen, you know, that those gas export terminals um, uh, opening up up north. You know, there was a, there were people in the space saying, "Look, you know, we're going to be exposed to international markets, and you you, you can expect export parity around gas." So it wasn't a shock, um, but I think it was a shock to consumers. 
And, you know, the, there was a few a few other intersecting issues um, in terms of, you know, a, a tightness in the electricity market at the time due to the exit of some generators. All came together and into a bit of an anus horribilis um, from a price perspective. And I think that was a bit of a watershed moment because it, it elevated energy to a strategic issue for business. My observation would be that traditionally in, in Australia, and, and uh, I think you could argue appropriately so, that, that most businesses, particularly uh, small and medium businesses, have, have treated energy as a um, as sort of a, a matter of uh, managing it from a, from a, a cost perspective. And, but largely from a procurement angle, so locking in the lowest unit cost um, of, mm. of energy. And that's been something that's been able to be achieved um, relatively easily over the last couple of decades. That, that changed, particularly uh, manufacturers, for example, that were suddenly recontracting for gas in 2017 and seeing you know, um, really, really significant increases in the, uh, the gas that were, prices that were on offer for, for two or three year contracts. So we, we started getting a whole bunch of questions about what's going on in the market, what's driving this, um, and what's going on in the electricity market as well. You know, what, what's this, is this all being caused by renewables? What's what's the what are the issues that are, that we need to start to get ahead around? And so boards, directors, CEOs that had previously just left procurement of energy up to the, the experts in the business that were um, focused on those contracts were saying, oh, "Hang on, we rely on." energy in our business we need to get across this and so that was a real moment um, uh, certainly for us and and for a lot of the people we work with in this space to say well we've got this opportunity to have a conversation and that's when we really started our business literacy push Mm. you know we've got a platform called energybriefing.org.au which is not about selling businesses anything it's about basically giving them good information so they can navigate this energy transition um, that's something that we um, we've put a lot of effort into over the journey because we think that you know businesses are going to be in a position to make good investment decisions if they're informed um, and that's something which you know has continued to evolve over time um, starting to come in I suppose um, even back in 2017 2018 2019 um, was you know the you know how businesses interact with a decarbonizing particularly electricity system some of the opportunities around flexibility so we are moving from a what I sort of like to call a 20th century energy system which is dominated by all you know large thermal generators um, you know you've got networks effectively ferrying energy to where it's needed um, and you've got businesses and households sort of hanging off the end of the energy system to a 21st century energy system which is a lot more distributed effectively buildings and facilities are the energy system in the sense that they've they've often got generators on the roof and increasingly there's a there's a great benefit in businesses shaping their load to match the availability of renewables which is a completely different set of circumstances to the one that ones that we experienced back in the 1970s 1980s 1990s we had a, a very well established stable uh, network and, and gener- mm. generation infrastructure that had really by that point been bedded down um, so Energy flexibility, being able to shape your load as as measured as another key strategic driver, sort of businesses starting to get around how they can they can shift their load over time to, as I say, match with renewables. Mm. And the third one, which is obvious, and I know you've sort of canvassed in some of your your recent episodes of the show, is you know this um, strong push, which has been gathering momentum for some time, but really has has come into huge focus over the last couple of years, which is you know the interest in businesses doing their bit on the journey to net zero. Uh, and that's a 
that's again a, a strategic driver. It's often it's often one, uh, something um, whereby boards and senior executives have recognised that there's an expectation that they, you know, they are doing their bit on that journey. Mm. And um, you know, while there's a there's a range of levers you can pull to get your business on track for thriving in a net zero economy, energy efficiency. Smarter energy management is often one of the obvious places to start. You know, you can save some money, you can cut some carbon and you can start to really get a good understanding of where those emissions are being derived from on your site, particularly in terms of scope one and scope two. Absolutely, Mm. yeah. That's a really good point. I think that, I mean, not only is it green credentials of the building, but it is a necessity to to continue to to look at the way you're using energy and waste in building spaces and, and getting a little bit smarter about that as well. I heard recently on the leaders' debate, um, they're talking about investment in the infrastructure, networking infrastructure and so forth, and they're talking about $20 billion worth of infrastructure cost that's coming, Um, and and with the invested sort of capital of $20 billion in the infrastructure that sits in in Australia. And I think, you know, one of the roles that I know that the Energy Efficiency Council um, talks a lot about is... Engaging with political leaders and really challenging their position on energy policy, and also, you know, really trying to define the future of sustainability. So, from your conversations, and I, I've listened to a lot of those in your podcast, First Fuel, you talk to a number of political leaders from different sides of the of the realm, if you like, with different ideas around that. What would be interesting for us is to understand some insights from those conversations and how you see it maybe playing out, given that perhaps we will see a change in leadership um, and and how that will evolve from, from your perspective. Well, well, my first question, Mike, is how quickly you turn these episodes around, because uh, if you're releasing this after the election, I could be looking very silly. <laughs> <laughs> We'll push it out as quickly as we can. Um, yeah. Look, it's, <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's a it's swinging totally pole, I'm being, isn't I'm it? Being, oh, it's, it's, it's very hard to pick. I think, um, you know, uh, there, were, there were a lot of people, um, and, and I was among them at the last election, who who felt that based on the polls and the consistency of the polls for a long time, that it was it was a pretty clear Labor win, and obviously that's not the way it went. So um, mm. I think there's a lot of people, including me, that are approaching this with... Uh, this election with a little bit more more caution, um, but anyway, look, it's a good question, and you know, it did. It was I was interested to see as we record. Um, we had the second leaders debate, and the topic of uh, the, the spend on network infrastructure did come up. And I suppose I, I want to answer your question, but I, I sort of want to make a point along the way, which is when we talk about energy efficiency, energy management, it's also relevant to the sort of network augmentation we need to do in terms of the electricity grid. If we if we don't take advantage of some of that sensible uh, energy efficiency, energy management opportunity, um, you're going to be building a lot more generation and a lot more network infrastructure than you need to um, to you know transition to that 21st century energy system. It's inevitable that you're going to need to spend on the network mm. as it transitions. The, the question is how much you need to spend. And that goes to not just kind of like the, the generation needs at a particular point in time, but also, you know, how you're managing energy over the course of a day. And as we move to that 21st century energy system, the situation in terms of local network needs become become uh, something that you need to pay much closer attention to. But anyway, I just want to make that point on the way through, because your question was actually about the uh, the political parties and, and where they stand. And uh, 
I don't know. Like, I will give my opinion about... <laughs> mm. I think it's very, very separate. So Scott Morrison's idea around 2050 is quite substantial. He talks about not a lot of reform and they just can't drop, you know, coal-fire, you know, generation as quickly as perhaps they'd like, as opposed to Albanese's really approach is we can't be on top of it quick enough and I think we really need to do something about that. Whether that's absolutely what they believe and what they can achieve um, in the next, what, 20, 30 years is still to be seen, but it's relevant um, to, I guess, the younger population that is looking for these people to make a substantial change to the way they produce and generate energy in Australia. Um, So they're very different um, and probably not surprisingly, I guess. Yeah, so I suppose I'd agree with that. There There are some very clear delineations between the two major parties. So, so as you said, you know, we, I've got this podcast, First Fuel, um, uh, that uh, we've been running out of the EEC for, um, for a couple of years now. And at the start of the year, we invited each of the key political players. Uh, we had um, Chris Bowen uh, from, from the Labor Party, Tim Wilson from the Liberal Party. Um, we also had Adam Bant, the leader of the Greens, and Zali Stegall join us to because independence being absolutely crucial um, uh, this election season. We, we sort of wanted to get some guidance from her and where, and where she saw things going. In terms of, you know, what's transpired over the last little while, I suppose what we can say in terms of consensus is we have seen uh, the, the coalition government uh, commit to net zero by 2050, mm. which means that there's bipartisanship around the, the end goal, if I can put it that way, um, which, is, which is not an insignificant step forward. Um, that's the, that's um, that's quite an important development. What I would say, though, is that that moves the debate fairly quickly onto tin tax, which is well, how quickly are you getting there, and and, mm. and how how exactly are you doing it? Um, there's quite a bit of differentiation if I look at the political parties. Um, so, uh, in terms of those interim targets, so um, the coalition government is committed to 28 by 2030, which is the target that was put in place um, when, when Abbott was uh, Prime Minister. Um, Labor, after sort of extended deliberations, went with a 43% target by by 2030, which, interesting is isn't that different to what they took to the 2019 election. They took a 45% target in 20, 2019, and they've, they've decided on a 43% target this, this time around. The Greens, if you, and I'm interested to know, do you, I had to look this up um, uh, a few days ago uh, for something else. Um, do, you, do you know what the, the, the Greens target is for 2030, Mike? Oh, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to say it must be significantly higher than that, so 60 or 70%. 75% yeah. is the Greens target, which is a, a, a significant step up in terms of in terms of ambition. So you can see there's a there's some divergence there and, uh, and you know, the independents, they sort of bounce around a bit, they sort of, but they tend to be in the sort of the 50 to 60% range, which is not a, a ridiculous range to be. And I'd note that the New South Wales Conservative government currently has a 50% target by 2030. So that's um, that's certainly within the realms of, you know, uh, you know reasonable debate. So you know, there's a range, the range in terms of ambition, and then in terms of policy, there is there are some 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 pretty big differences. Um, the one that has uh, dominated this campaign is um, the approach to a fairly uh, geeky kind of a policy measure called the safeguard mechanism, um, which um, is a, a mechanism that was introduced um, by the current government, um, went into force in in 2016, and covers you know around. 
200 large polluters, polluters that uh, emit 100,000 tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions or more, and they have a baseline set. And the idea is that by staying under that baseline, um, you, you ensure that those large emitters aren't starting to emit more um, and offsetting emissions reductions that are occurring um, in other parts of the economy. Now, that's that's been you know sitting there on the books for a number of years. The critics of the safeguard mechanism will, will say, well, it's a bit of a toothless tiger because it's very easy to change your baselines and it's, they're not particularly ambitious anyway, so it's not doing a whole lot. And um, the Labor Party, and I might say with, uh, with the support of... Uh, Organisations like the AI Group and uh, and the Business Council Australia have indicated that they'll they'll effectively put that that safeguard mechanism to work and start uh, reducing those baselines over time, in line with their uh, sort of emissions reduction ambitions. And it's really interesting that that's been welcomed by the business community, who are looking for a bit of certainty and stability and a sensible pathway forward. And uh, and that's probably. Uh, I'd say almost the biggest substantive difference between the two parties in terms of in terms of their emissions reduction policies. That is a pretty significant policy covering you know a, a massive chunk of the emissions that are generated by the Australian economy. Um, a lot of the detail around exactly how Labor's policy would work. I said, oh well, we'll we'll work that out with business post election. So there's there's still you know they have to win the election and then and then you know they have to have those deliberations and conversations. But then a, a lot will hang, as I you know said earlier, on you know the 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 shape of the parliament. You know whether it's a yeah, exactly. I mean we we sort of sit around as you as you do in advocacy organisations, sort of thinking about the various permutations. And and there's a lot out of this parliament. You could have you know, majority Morrison, minority Morrison, minority Albanese, majority Albanese. And if it's minorities, um, it makes a big difference in <laughs> supporting yeah, the, the government, right, and sort of what their priorities are. So um, I, I can say one thing. It's going to be interesting, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and in, but in terms in terms of uh, in terms of where it's all going, I suppose it seems more likely than not that that focus on climate is just going to continue to ramp up over time. Because you know, I think that there's been a recognition across all sides of politics that this is kind of core business, and this is mm. something that both the industry and, and householders are keenly interested. They well, they want their government to be uh, doing things that are moving the ball in the right direction. And you know, in the context of floods and, and fires and the various sort of uh, natural disasters that we've experienced around the country, you can understand why there's that that expectation from the Australian community that uh, that we that we really start to focus on this. Yeah, and more mainstream rather than edge people as well. And I think you mentioned this as well, that you know some of the biggest polluters are motivated themselves just to reach targets that they've set, like FFI's target around zero emissions, 2030, BHP 50 and, and Rio Tinto. So they're, they're motivated irrespective of government uh, regulations and directions anyway. And I think that self-reporting, I think maybe that was the catalyst maybe to realise, you know, what's going on here in Australia. But isn't it also interesting that that we're going to rely on these mining sites and mining customers for the very minerals and metals that we need for renewable space? Yep. Uh, a lot of precious metals and so forth. So it, it's going to be an interesting play in the future. Well, uh, well this goes uh, this goes to the, the great opportunity for Australia, right? Um, this this transition and this transformation that the world's going to work its way through is n- is not just an opportunity in terms of the potential to export energy 
Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of interest in the role of hydrogen as an as an export industry um, for for Australia. Um, that's that's certainly something which could play a big role, likely in the back half of the 2030s and the 2040s. Um, but Australia is an exporter of materials and minerals that play a crucial role in the energy transition, and you know, hopefully, doing a you know, the, uh, you might call me crazy, Mike, but do a bit bit of value adding here before it gets shipped overseas. <laughs> well, that's a that's an incredible opportunity. Hopefully, um, and uh, you know, it's I think that um, to their great credit, there are there are a bunch of state governments that are sort of th- thinking pretty deeply about all that and tr- trying to make sure Australia is positioned to take advantage of of the opportunity and. The debate's getting a bit more sophisticated, where it is it is less focused on, you know, the idea of some sort of sacrifice, if I can put it that way, or that you know we're, we're giving things up. It's actually about positioning Australia for the for the sort of the, the next wave of economic opportunity, and it is absolutely in this clean energy space. Um, but it's complicated, you know. Like it's uh, there's lots of moving parts to it. You can understand. People around the country wanting to, wanting some confidence that you know they're going to have a have a part to play in that that new picture, mm. um, and so you know it's incumbent on all of us that you know have an interest in in, in getting there, and certainly political leaders to, to take the community on that journey, and and that journey looks different in different parts of the country, which makes it complicated for, for a federal government. And this is something that I've been reflecting on a bit recently. State governments with net zero commitments are all around the country for a number of years now. So I sort of think, what's the what's the issue? What, why why is it so difficult to, to land it at a federal level? You know, it's sort of it was, it was a real lagging piece um, from from the national government, and uh, I wonder to some degree whether it is you know the the different situations in different states. Um, and so while you've got net zero commitments all around the country, they've all got a bit of a, their own state flavour. <laughs> Yeah, they do. And so, you know, what the Queensland government is talking about in terms of pathway when it comes to net zero is quite different to Victoria and and and, and vice versa. Um, and the sort of emphasis that's been put. So from a political narrative point of view, um, you've got some latitude to sort of shape a story at a state level, which kind of kind of blow up in your face when you try and do it at a federal level because everyone sort of accuses you of sort of talking out of, out of the side of your mouth um, because you're saying mm. something you know different in one part of the country than you are in the other so maybe there's some maybe there's some uh, uh, some sort of political realities there in terms of the, the different sort of place in the journey that different parts of the country are on that make it a, a lot harder to wrangle um, at that national level there you go I, I was just reflecting on that I, you can uh, you can cut that out of the podcast if, if you like it's sort of some free political commentary um, I, here's the issue Mike I, I usually do yeah. the interviewing on my podcast so I don't have the opportunity to to uh, sound off on these sorts of issues so I'm, I'm just taking advantage of your platform to do so I'm I'm uh, happy to have you here but um, I think you're right though I think that power generation in Victoria is very gas based mm. and the decisions we we make around how we manage gas and that transition to hydrogen through hydrogen injection and so forth may be very different than, than Queensland's yep. approach to coal fire generation as well. So I agree. And, uh, and we've got Tasmania who's been the golden star of energy efficiency and, and uh, renewables well, for many years. Well, that's the trick, isn't it? It's not just the political climate in different states mm. and, and, you know, what's sort of acceptable from a social perspective. It's also the, you, you know, where you're starting from in terms of infrastructure. 
Mm. And that, that varies very significantly from state to state. So the idea you're going to have like a generic pathway um, to, you know, zero emissions fuels or electrification or, or, you know, whatever it is, it's going to look different, not just state by state, but also regionally. You can have the sort of the hashtag sort of debate at a high level, but pretty quickly you need to get down to, you know, what's going on in different states, what's going on in different sectors as well. It's something I, you know, I, my, yeah. my team starts, you know, gets sick of me talking about this, but um, uh, there will at least be a handful of your listeners that haven't heard me say this before. Like what, what frustrates me about the debate here in Australia is is, is that we, we sort of talk at a, at a high economic level but don't talk enough about, you know, the particular pathways for, for different sectors of the economy in terms of that decarbonisation journey. And it's going to look super different for residential buildings versus commercial buildings versus, you know, manufacturing, food processing, mm. you know. All, and, you know, when you get in manufacturing, there's so many different subsectors within that, that space and they, it all looks different. And, and not only that, but you've got different stakeholders that need to be sort of put at the centre of that, that journey. So it, it is actually um, a really important to think in a granular way. Um, and then, you know, coming to coming back to the EEC and what we do and what we add to the, to the debate, I suppose, is, um, you know, we're often thinking about it um, from the from the customer's perspective in terms of the outcomes that they're trying to achieve, um, which is often, you know, the businesses don't exist to decarbonise themselves. They exist to, you know, <laughs> do whatever job they, 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 mm. their shareholders set for them, uh, usually turning a profit and, uh, you know, producing a widget or, or whatever it is. And so, you know, you've got to find a pathway to, to do that decarbonisation piece, which is collectively so important in a way that's going to work for the business as well. And so that sort of getting into the granular detail of like, well, how do we help this particular cohort along this journey um, is, is something that I'm, I'm really interested in. And you can't do it, the 50,000-foot view. The 50,000-foot view is important, but you've got to get down onto the ground um, and sort of think through what are, the, what, are the, what are the actual challenges? What do these businesses care about? How do we, how do we support them on this journey? That's kind of where I'm coming from. Mm. And that's a good pathway. And so last podcast, I was talking to Adrian from Horizon. We're talking about stepping up and contributing and being active um, and being part of the, the message. So so how is it that business can get involved with the Energy Efficiency Council and amplify this message around energy and sustainability? What can we do? Well, look, um, we're a membership-based organisation and, you know, we have uh, heaps of great members, ABB obviously um, um, included, among them and we appreciate that support and that really enables us to I guess take the collective expertise and insights of, of all of our members and feed that through a few different channels. Um, obviously we're, we're interested in shaping sensible government policy and work in a, in a really balanced way with both sides of the, the political spectrum to make sure that there's a, a really strong bipartisan uh, interest in, in good energy efficiency, energy management policy, making sure that we're taking advantage of the demand side and as we work our way through this transition. But the other piece, of course, which I've mentioned a couple of times on the way through, is making sure that businesses um, that are navigating this transition and, and, you know, trying to get good impartial information, making sure that they have that information to hand. And that's, I suppose, you know, where our energy briefing pl- platform comes into play. But it, whether you're interested in I suppose the, I guess the advocacy piece or that business literacy piece, um, joining the EEC, is obviously something we always, we always welcome. Um, you know, there's a lot of organisations that are, you know, membership-based organisations, and all companies that are active in this space have to make decisions about who and who they want to get involved with and where they're getting, 
getting that value. I, I suppose what I'd say about the EEC is that, you know, yes, there's a there's a membership fee and that's important, um, pays my wage. But um, the, the, you know, what, what we really look to do with all of our members is to make sure that there's, there's that engagement, whether it's mm. in task groups or committees or, you know, particular projects that we're doing. Because, you know, yes, uh, there's, a, there's a membership invoice every year, but there's even more important than that is the kind of the, the contribution of... Um, of expertise and insight, um, what's happening on the ground, and and you know that sense of contributing to that collective voice in terms of the the sector as a whole. I, I think it's it's probably fair to say that when we were founded, you know, energy efficiency, energy management, that sort of didn't it was, it sort of hadn't coalesced as a sector under network, and that's we've made a, we've made some really good progress over the last decade in terms of bringing that group together, and um, you know that we've managed to establish ourselves as a, a credible collective voice that is um, listened to and, and respected by by government and, and of course all of our, our partners. So you know uh, if, if that is uh, piquing interest uh, among your um, around your listeners of Mike we're always happy to have a chat and see, see, uh, see how different organizations can get involved. So that that in the podcast, First Fuel, and the link to the Energy Efficiency Council will be in the bottom of the podcast. I mean, from our perspective, from ABB, you know, this early engagement with the EEC has been outstanding. Just the quality of people, the information, the sharing, but also the other businesses that are involved. And it is um, beneficial just to not only expand information and share information, but you're right, but the advocacy part of the the business also um, to get ourselves aligned and so that we can have a common message. And our experience has been outstanding. So, um, yeah, absolutely uh, um, fully commit to that as well. That's oh, great to hear. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So let's just jump to the final couple of questions. Uh, first question is, what do you see is the most significant opportunity for innovation in the business right now? Look, um in terms of innovation, you know what, I think it's really about sort of, uh, you know, we talked a bit about net zero, right? Mm. Um, and it's great to have a target. Um, there's just been this massive ramp up in particularly ASX listed companies with, with net zero targets of some form or other. But then there's this this next step, which is about how you operationalise the target. And I think that um, for a lot of businesses, that's a really rich kind of a potentially quite awkward moment but a moment where you know where, the, where you've got data gaps in your business where you don't necessarily know exactly where you know where you're using energy and what's what's permit what's what's generating emissions you can start to leverage some of the technology that's available to get a really granular understanding of mm. of, of, of what's happening in your business so you can make good decisions moving forward so this moment of businesses setting targets of uh, boards and, and and CEOs and like, sort of asking asking their teams, well, you know, how do we make how do we we take a step forward? It's an opportunity um, to fill some of those gaps, and then you know, for the operational part of the business to to feed that information back up to um, to management to say, well, this is this is what we can do, but we need you to back us in. Um, and so, you know, those conversations, as you know, Mike, are happening right across the country. Yeah, um, and in a way that they, that I've certainly never seen before, and so I suppose it's um, it's it's an innovation piece that isn't about any particular piece of kit, but it's innovation in terms of business practice. This piece around emissions reduction, this is not going to be a, a fad that sort of slips away in the next three minutes. This is going to be sort of the the great task of our our working lives. 
Um, and there's a lot of people that are getting on that bandwagon right now and are getting their head around yeah, it all. And so for those of us that have maybe been thinking about this for a little bit, little bit longer, um, there's that opportunity to support them on that journey and, and really start to embed some, some good practice, some good thinking, some, an understanding of the importance of data, the, an understanding of the iterative nature of this stuff, you know, getting some quick wins on the board, but then, you know, being able to track those wings and, and show what they've done for the business and then, you know, build appetite for further investments. That's, that's a journey that we're going to be on. Um, so that's really incredibly exciting. Um, and um, and I I, um, I think that there's a there's a there's a place, and we're certainly thinking about this at the Energy Efficiency Council for starting to think about how we can how we can standardise some of the thinking about what good net zero operationalisation looks like. Um, because at the moment you ask five different people and they give you five different answers about what you should be doing in terms of dealing with your own. Um, uh, emissions on site and offsets and you know PPAs and all of these different bits and pieces and it, it's while we're the energy efficiency council um, our view is that you know energy efficiency energy management it does it, it does well when it's put in a context and no business just has an energy efficiency strategy so we're thinking about how to make sure that you know we work with our partners um, and we have a lot of them across the across the not for profits space um, to make sure that there's some really consistent guidance for for business on this front. Yeah, but never before have we had access or more access to data and being able to use that data, you know, more intelligently yeah. as well to make yeah. meaningful, you know, changes and, and getting information around how we modify our use of, of energy and so forth. So it's all in front of us, I think. This is a generational change opportunity for us as well, uh, for our, you know, our children. Okay, second last question is favourite podcast. You can you can say first <laughs> <laughs> if you like, uh, or book or Netflix series. Uh, well, I feel like we've promoted first fuel enough, to be honest. Um, but um, you know what, I well, I'm gonna you know, we talked a little bit about politics, right? Mm-hmm. I'll reveal something. I um, I used to be an avid reader, and then I took on this job, and I stopped reading pretty much entirely, except for <laughs> bloody IPCC reports and things like that. Um, so, but what I what I have done the last uh, eighteen months is I is I really got into audiobooks. And um, and that's I sort of uh, actually replaced a few podcasts with audiobooks. I thought, right, I've got to get some new ideas into my brain. And um, I, in relatively short order, um, in the first half of uh, last year, I, I, I read two books, both of them very long, um, from different perspectives. But I read uh, or listened to Barack Obama's autobiography. Oh, yeah. But then I also listened to Malcolm Turnbull's. And it was really fascinating Um they're sort of two obviously different part, different sides of the political spectrum, different nations, but you know their pathways intersected in quite interesting ways. Mm. Um, and you know because Turnbull has a keen interest in international affairs, um, and you know was uh, was happily recounting sort of various bits and pieces that uh, transpired uh, in the course of his. Uh, Prime Ministership, and and you know, as you, you won't be surprised to hear that um, that Barack Obama was picking up on some of those themes as well. So look, um, uh, that would be uh, that. I think that um, if you were looking to sort of get into the heads of um, some of our political leaders and the way that they they sort of think about some of these some of these things, um, you know, they're both pretty pretty interested in burnishing their own credentials, as you'd expect. <laughs> 
So take, mm. you can take that yeah, with a, yeah. a, a you know with a grain of salt if you wish, Mike. But I, I thought it was um, <laughs> it was uh, I really enjoyed it actually. I really enjoyed hearing those he, hearing those two perspectives, and and it was interesting hearing them back to back. Ah, yeah, exactly, and and the crossover twin stories. I mean, they met each other a couple of times, yeah. perhaps um, relevant in what they were going through from a different perspective, different country views. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, Barack Obama, what a great individual. Um, so my last question is a bit reflective, I think. That you know, what would you tell yourself one thing at the start of your career? What would it be? Yeah. So. Um, uh there's a there's there's another book um, which was very influential for me in terms of my sort of my thinking about my career and I, I read it sort of ten years ago so it sort of had made some progress but um, obviously there's a bit of water under the bridge since then and it's called um, so good they can't ignore you and that book has a, a I think a, a really useful. Uh, insight, which is it sort of talks about you know the the, the research on um, what makes you happy in your career, and there's effectively you know there's a, there's a lot of things that feed into it, but there's there's two things right. There's a, a being seen as an expert, some someone whose opinion is valued, mm-hmm. um, and there's a uh, there's an element of that which is uh, having some autonomy, like. Being able to basically not have your day sort of regimented by someone more senior, but you've sort of you're trusted to sort of make your own decisions about how you're spending your time. So those two things correlate very strongly with people being happy in their career. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting in terms of decisions that that people make um, as they as they move through their careers, because what this book talks about in terms of, of how you achieve those things is you can't have generic skills. If you have really generic skills, um, you're not going to be particularly respected because there's, you know, 20 other people who could say exactly the same thing. (laughs) Um, And you're not necessarily going to be in a position to negotiate a whole lot of autonomy either for the same reason. Um, Mm. So so this goes to this point around um, specialisation, I suppose, and picking the things that, um, you know, allow you to differentiate yourself. Um, I I had had this when I was doing, I mentioned my master's earlier. I sort of thought, oh, well, you know, I want to go off and uh, do something about climate change so I did a master's of environment and I realized that's that was too big a topic <laughs> and then like, okay well I'll specialize in in energy right mm. and then you know after after sort of getting my head around that I was like okay well that's a ridiculously large topic as well um, and then I thought okay you know what um, energy efficiency I'm really into this um, I'll focus on energy efficiency and then of course having spent a decade in the sector now uh, I'm fully aware <laughs> That energy efficiency, you know, again, well, it's it's bloody huge, right? Like, you know, and you're talking of yep. whether you think about sectors or technologies, um, you know, there's people and the people I know that, uh, you know, can are experts on, on one technology within one sector and have, got, have devoted their whole career to that piece. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, you can always dive deeper, but I suppose it's um, it's a matter of, you know, finding your niche and, and where you can make a contribution and have an, have an impact and... Uh, I guess that's that's uh, uh, having. I'm, I'm drawing on that book for this answer, mm-hmm. Mike. But certainly, mm-hmm. that's that, that's a um, a uh, a key insight which I would uh, I would share with my younger self if I was uh, if I was to a land in my DeLorean in you know uh, 2002 or something. <laughs> so exactly. well, I was sort of sitting in a coffee shop, sort of wondering what I was going to do with my life. Well, that's wonderful. And Luke, again, thank you. Um, 
lovely insight, but also to the point around specialisation when you're talking to experts, and, and I really think that you are in energy efficiency, and you're bringing the conversation to people, both at a political level and business owners and right across the industry as well. It's an important message for all of us to, to, to become educated and self-educated, whether that's spending time, you know, listening to books or reading, um, which I don't have the time myself, but whatever it may be, is to get yourself educated and think about how we can make significant changes for the future of our of our children uh, and this planet. So uh, excellent. Loved it. Very detailed. Love the political slant on it. Um, thinking about and wanting to be a part of energy efficiency, please be involved. Um, talk to Luke and the team at EEC and they will find their way and you will begin the journey towards a sustainable future for, for all of us as well. So again, thank you. Thanks, Luke. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Okay, so to wrap up, I'm going to give you three takeaways. One, sustainability is a generational change for our future. What we do today is going to make an impact on our children. So the second one is information and data will drive our decision making in the future. The way we manage energy, not by just spending less, but by reducing the consumption of energy is key. And the third, advocacy. Come forward, step up and talk about energy efficiency and sustainability in your business. In the arena, as an open conversation, not only is one of the things we need to do just to get by, but to really make a significant difference to our organisations. Remember, innovation and collaboration are the key to building a better future. Bye for now.